Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone, welcome live to the show. I'm not actually in London, I'm now actually currently in Sheffield where I was born, a plastic Yorkshireman. Uh, but good to be back uh, in, my, in, my, in, my, in my home domestic happy environment. But it's great to be able to talk to you today about a very, 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 very important issue, of course, which is the future of Afghanistan, which has now fallen, of course, uh, to the Taliban. Now, we've got Two absolutely fantastic guests today, including someone who is live, of course, in Kabul and will talk us through the developments on the ground, what's actually happening and the situation that faces Afghanistan. And we're going to be talking about the broader context, what this means for the US hegemon, which, of course, has been the hegemonic power since World War Two after the defeat uh, that they suffered in Afghanistan. And of course, about the British parliamentary debate, I wrote a column this week for The Guardian about how divorced from reality much of those parliamentary proceedings were. There was no attempt to, or very little attempt to place it in the context of two decades now of foreign intervention, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the broader so-called war on terror, uh, about the situation that specifically faced Britain in Afghanistan. Britain essentially themselves withdrew from Afghanistan, of course, many years before the Americans did, back in 2014, leaving only a skeleton force uh, in their wake. None of that was present in the debate. And instead, we had a former Prime Minister, Theresa May, being applauded for talking about global Britain, about how global Britain somehow could have unilaterally acted in Afghanistan, whether it be uh, by somehow convincing Joe Biden to renege on his campaign promises, or somehow to go alone um, as though Britain has had an independent foreign policy uh, well, it hasn't since 1956 and the Suez crisis. We've got a lot to talk about today. Before I bring in the guests, because we're obviously going to hear from actual specialists rather than myself, just normal, just quick housekeeping rules. Uh, if you're watching live, hello, do click through on YouTube. That helps support the show. Press like, press subscribe. That way you'll get the videos. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, do subscribe as well. Spread the word. Uh, to support the show and the documentaries, we're currently working on a documentary about who has, uh, who owns Britain, uh, wealth and power, its concentration uh, in rural and urban Britain. All those documentaries are made possible on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. We try and give an alternative, uh, a, a voice to that being offered by much of the mainstream media in this country. But you make that possible with our brilliant team. Or you can use Super Chat if you want to put questions to the guests and support the show click through to YouTube and use Super Chat uh, and like the video. That helps the algorithm. Right, that's enough for me. I'm now going to bring in, and we're very honoured to have, uh, straight from Kabul, and I'm going to, I'm going to, we, I, we tested how I'm going to pronounce his name. So let's see if I can actually do this correctly, which is Obey the Law, Bahir, who's a lecturer at American, uh, the American University in Kabul. Thank you so much for joining us uh, live from Kabul. Thank you for having me on. 
Can you just talk us through, firstly, the situation on the ground in Kabul? What's the atmosphere like at the moment in the capital city? Well, the air is pretty dense uh, outside. People are hanging on the edge of a knife because uh, there is much to be seen and much to um, be heard from the Taliban. They, they did take over close to 10 days ago. Um, and if you go out, you would see a very small number of people, a skeleton uh, number compared to how many people would be out in the city on normal days. You don't see really, um, you don't see armored cars. You don't see big cars because I guess the Taliban did manage to gather most of the armored vehicles, the government issued ones. Um, and I guess the others who have their own private armored vehicles are too scared to bring them out on the road. Uh, the Taliban patrol the roads. They don't really interact with a lot of people. It's very passive. They don't stop people. There aren't no, there aren't check posts uh, available. So um, it's all of that. I think mostly the shops have opened up back up. The restaurants have. Um, the banks are still closed, which is problematic because the ATMs are out of cash as well. Um, and uh, there is an absence absence of governance. So there is a power vacuum in Afghanistan and which really helps the Taliban to excuse themselves very often from things that their fighters do within the city. Um, but uh, the Taliban really need to rush into creating some sort of political structure within the country uh, if they are to gain any of the trust that um, they really don't have from the local population that has spent tw two decades growing up in a world that saw them as the enemy. Uh, so there is much trust building that needs to take place. So what, how would you describe the mood amongst the local population in Kabul following the Taliban's assumption of power? Well, it took us by surprise. It took everyone by surprise. It took even the Taliban by surprise. They had no idea that they would be in Kabul this early. They have no plan for how to structure their government. So they are doing all their homework. They're trying to learn on the job. And all of that is obviously time-consuming. And it's difficult because then uh, we hear a lot of conflicting reports. A lot of the times the Taliban say that they will provide amnesty, that they will not harm specific minorities, they will respect women's rights. But then we see individual instances of that being completely ignored by the fighters on the ground. Um, the Taliban then claim that that's insubordination or individual actions. But if you are in a, under a system or, or you are in a world um, that doesn't have a system, doesn't have a government, means that you are far more anxious for your own security because if individual cases of retribution are taking place, that means that you could be next without anyone being able to stop it. We've seen these terrible scenes at the airport and the latest report suggests seven died have died in the crowds uh, amidst pretty desperate scenes of people trying to leave Afghanistan. How would you describe your, what you know of what's happening at the airport? And I mean, we've seen, we can see these disturbing scenes, but how, how is that playing out? Uh, I think it's better if we just look at initially the airport and the larger context of it. So with regards to the airport, we see that um, when the system fell, when the government collapsed, when the president fled, um, a lot of people in their panic rushed to the airports, tried to find the first flight out of the country. 
Um, it wasn't that simple. The airports got overcrowded. The Taliban were outside. The international forces then later on came in on the inside. It's very difficult for people to gain access and so much so that embassies had set up mechanisms for transportation. So you would go to the embassy, they would transport you to the airport and inside the different bases that are within the airport uh, or the camps. Um, and that has stopped happening since yesterday afternoon as well. Um, and the problem here is the larger context is that there are no government organs functioning within Afghanistan right now. That means that we have an interior ministry that really isn't doing anything because we don't have an interior minister. And the Taliban are stuck between two stances where they want to introduce someone to temporarily take over um, the ministries so that things can start functioning. But on the other end, they're trying to take their sweet time in establishing a proper government as well. So they say that we shouldn't introduce interim people, but we should introduce permanent members uh, soon. And it is most likely possible that they are waiting for the foreign troops withdrawal on 31st August to announce their government. And I personally think that that would be too late because uh, going another 10 days uh, or nine days without a government is going to take its toll on the Taliban's reputation and on the trust levels that the people have with the Taliban so far. The Taliban have been at great pains to try and project a kind of modernized, moderated version of themselves, that they've changed, they've reformed, that they're not going to return to the form, the extreme uh, notorious rule that they had, of course, from 1996 until 2001. How much do you think that's that's true? Have the Taliban changed or is this a PR exercise? Um, look, Owen, two things. Uh, one, that the Taliban had impeccable PR during the war. So uh, they outdid the government. They outdid even the United States with regards to the way they conducted their PR and how they went about this war. Um, the second bit is that credit where credit is due. Okay, The Taliban 25 years ago would not have said half of the things that they did with regards to showing, at least on the face of it, the desire to create an inclusive government, to sitting uh, in the media and saying that they will respect things that you never have expected the to say. So also that even at Hemat University, where the higher education commission of the Taliban went in and had a discussion with the administration uh, telling them that they wanted segregated classes for the female students and they wanted female faculty to teach the female students. Now, the university obviously told them that, A, they didn't have enough classes to segregate. B, they did not have female faculty to teach the women. Eventually, the Taliban said, OK, we are going to deal with if you can find older men that are pious to teach the women, we'll be fine with that. Also, with regards to the classes, maybe you can give us a counter proposal. So, that shows willingness of some sort of conversation. And at a time when the Taliban hold all the cards, right? So they have absolute monopoly over power. No one's here to challenge them as such. Um, they could do whatever they want. But I guess they're rational enough to understand the utility of international legitimacy, uh, of the pain of sanctions, of the importance of foreign aid. And I think that's keeping uh, the Taliban roped in so far. 
And so the international community really has to make a decision. Do you overuse your sanctions or you um, uh, apply them and lose the Taliban forever? Do you overdo your um, uh, your aid or whatever your uh, or international legitimacy, whatever, whatever you can give the Taliban to appease them to an extent where they really stopped, uh, fa- stop falling in line? So you have to balance it out to keep the carrot and stick equilibrium right so that the Taliban can at least keep complying um, and start translating whatever statements they're giving into actual actions and policies within Afghanistan. I mean, as you say, the Taliban's assumption of power took even them by surprise. And it sounds as though uh, things are very much in a state of flux and transition at the moment. How quickly do you think a stable, some sort of stable government will form and how stable do you think it actually will be? I think the larger question, the more important question is, what does that government look like, right? And the problem is that the international community has been very cutthroat with regards to not accepting a return of the emirate. Now, there are elements within the Taliban that are propagating for the reestablishment of an emirate, declaring a caliph or an emir within Afghanistan. And uh, that would have its repercussions. That would mean that the Taliban will be back to their own ways. They'll be pariahs in the world. But there is some sense within that group as well that is saying that, no, we will create an inclusive system. As to what that would look like, we haven't really heard much. They've met with a political elite within Afghanistan, told them that they wanted them on board, but never really said what they were asking them to be on board with. Um, And my best guess would be, and this is something that I wrote about extensively in the past when we were talking about what political system would be a middle ground between the Republic and the Emirate, And we could reestablish something that looks like the Iranian system. And this is not to say that the Iranian system is really functional or ideal, but this is probably one system that can work for now and satisfy the international community's demands and um, have some level of inclusion. That means you have an emir on the top, you have a state uh, council that that advises the president and has like a lot of power and then you might have a a a democratic structure you have both houses of parliament and and senate so um we have to wait and see as to what exactly they have in mind but they haven't been really vocal about what that structure looks like and honestly that power vacuum just needs to be filled as soon as possible which is why people were throwing around the idea of an interim government until the taliban could figure out what to do in the longer run but the Taliban don't seem to be too keen on doing an interim setup. But for now, they need to get the government organs functioning. And this state cannot be paralyzed for much longer. Um, I mean, the <laughs> Taliban have adopted in tone, again, quite a conciliatory tone, including towards their defeated opponents. I mean, how much do you think or do you fear repression by the Taliban, whether it be against political opponents academics like yourself, journalists, as well, of course, women and and girls? The major fear amongst the population is that the Taliban are behaving well relatively, um, and that might actually be because they know that the international community's eye is on them, that there are foreign troops yet present in Afghanistan. And the fear is that when they leave, they might actually create more larger policies of retribution, of cracking down on dissidents and so on and so forth. So that is a real fear. And that's something that the Taliban would really have to address. 
And if the Taliban aim to establish their government after foreign troops leave, that itself creates a sense of uh, suspense and uh, suspicion from the population with regards to what their goals are. So let's just hope they don't do that. But I, And I don't want them to go to the other extreme either. Look, Afghanistan failed as a democracy. Why did it fail as a democracy? There are a hundred different stakeholders involved, including the West majorly as well. But one of the major reasons was the, um, was the apparent uh, corruption, right? And that means that the same figures that are sitting in Kabul that didn't flee, that are now negotiating with the Taliban, are the same people that were the major cause of the failure of the previous regime. Now, do the Taliban include them for the appeasement of the West, saying, well, I've created an inclusive system? Or do they actually create a lustration process to block these people out of following governments? Now, if they do it themselves, it appears like it's victor's justice. It appears like the Taliban are exercising monopoly on the justice system. But what they do in return, what they should do is actually involve third-party organs, uh, create bodies that look into the profiles of these people. Um, They could, uh, even if not prosecute them, at least ban them from participating in the future. Or something that the Taliban can do is develop institutions, develop a mechanism to weed off these people in the future in case they do uh, cause or take part in any form of corruption. But all of that is right now in the air and is all based on assumptions. And it's really tiring, you know, like we've been holding our breath for so long, um, wanting to see what happens next. And uh, we really don't know. We really don't know what's going to happen. Just a couple of other things, just specifically, of course, on the US withdrawal. I mean, what's your... What's your own take on, I suppose, the debate which is taking place in the United States over the nature of the withdrawal, uh, Joe Biden's defense of the position? I mean, what's your take on the circumstances that led to the U.S. withdrawal and the debate that's taking place in the West about it from your own perspective? It's quite interesting because uh, a few days back, Sky News had me on and Biden talking about all the things that he'd done for the Afghan people after the withdrawal. And I said that it felt like Biden was someone who punched you in the gut and then told you all the amazing things he did for you after the punch. And that got misquoted. Some people actually uh, took it up as me saying, I want to punch the American president in the gut. So I was like, there goes my prospects for any visas to the United States ever. Um, But um, honestly, uh, the Afghans didn't want the foreign troops to stay forever, right? They had to leave. They were the main. Um, the, so every war in order to happen has to create its own truths and myths. So in order for me to convince you, Owen, to go and, and fight and kill people with me, I have to create this story for you. Like, why are we doing this? Because obviously your natural sense would tell you, why am I going there risking my life killing people? So we have to create this grander story, grander myth, right? Um, and what happens is within Afghanistan, um, the United States um, chose to withdraw. Fine, good by us. But then what they do is they do it in such a haphazard way. It's unconditional. It's done after giving the Taliban complete legitimacy by signing a peace deal with them, by undermining the Republic. Um, And uh, the way that it was conducted gave a very... um, 
bad sense of defeat, which fed into the Taliban narrative of having impending victory. That meant that they were going to win one way or the other. And if they could defeat the world hegemon, then defeating the Afghan puppet regime was very easy for them. So they fed into that momentum, right? But all of that's in the past. What are they doing now, right? Um, they could negotiate a very complex peace deal with the Taliban, with multiple appendages that were never disclosed to the pop populace or the world. Yet they cannot engage with the Taliban enough to discuss a third party coming in and holding and conducting either a humanitarian corridor into the airport or bringing in a third party's armed troops to conduct the processes of the airport. We don't have administration in the airport. The director general of aviation has flown out, has left the country. And with regards to the security, we have the United States troops inside. We have the Taliban outside, zero communication between them. People cannot get across to go in. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if you have a thousand flights leaving Kabul, if no one is on the, those flights, if you don't have a mechanism for processing paperwork, if you don't have a mechanism for people reaching the airport, um, people are hiring officers on the ground. People are paying the Taliban to get them into the airport. And all of that is a very complex process that not everyone has access to. So all of those are the legacies of the United States. They turned off their lights at their biggest military base and flew out in the middle of the night. They didn't even have it in them to communicate with the Afghan authorities or the Afghan defense forces that we were leaving. How is that how the, the United States policymakers should hang their heads in shame for what they've done to a very proud nation. These are very proud Afghans who are pleading, who are bleeding on the tarmacs of the airport, trying to get out from a war that the West, that the United States, that the British government created in Afghanistan, right? Where is the sense of responsibility towards the victims? Where is the sense of responsibility and why have we created a social hierarchy for people's humanities? Because when you hear Biden stand up, he doesn't talk about the plight of Afghans. He says, we're trying very hard to get Americans out on the first level. We're going to get the, Ameri the Afghans that help the Americans on the second level. And then the common Afghans, maybe they can be accommodated as well, which is really sad because that's how you view us. And it, it hasn't changed. We are still a lesser children of God to the policymakers in the West, which is heartbreaking, which is why this vicious cycle of violence is not going to end. You left Afghanistan as a fragile state, which will be ruled by the Taliban. If you sanction them, if you ignore them, you will just have another return to 9-11 in a decade or two again. Then we will have a war again. Then we will have uh, false dreams fed into the Afghan population. Then they will be stripped out of them again. People have left. The educated people of Afghanistan are leaving every day. This country is going through a brain drain. And I really don't know how this government is ever going to function or be sustainable without all of that expertise and the institutional memory that has left the country. And just lastly, because we're, we're very lucky to have you and I know how busy you are. Just, just lastly, you mentioned corruption and corruption being, I mean, the US authorities essentially f fueled that uh, corruption. An, an investigation by the Washington Post found 
how the US essentially fed corruption by in exchange for uh, uh, for information and intelligence on the ground. But what other reasons would you describe for being why the US suffered after two decades of occupation a, a defeat? I mean, it is a defeat, uh, which has been compared, of course, to the fall of Saigon. Um, and finally, the other, we, we've been asked by Tad about the opposition in Panja Valley, ex-government soldiers forming a new Northern Alliance. Uh, of course, before 2001, uh, the Taliban ruled two thirds of Afghanistan, but the Northern Alliance uh, ruled about uh, about a third or up to a third. Uh, so the, the situation in the countryside as well, outside of the major cities. Look, the United States um, failed to have any sort of cultural insensitivity. They choose, chose brute force. They chose to uh, bulldoze through their problems. And when that failed, they brought in bags full of money and they tried to buy out the loyalty of people. And the concept is when you buy people out, it's very temporary and they will switch, switch sides when their benefits align with another group or another vision. Um, just not investing on institutionalization. Uh, Afghanistan was kept uh, as a failing state, as a fragile state throughout the years. And what happened was initially the United States steps in complete cultural insensitivity, not conducting their counterinsurgency strategies in a way that fits the Afghan culture, running into people's houses, raiding them, bombing people, um, as, torturing them, creating more and more enemies within Afghanistan. Then when the United States decide to take a back step, they bring in diaspora from the West and hand them over all the important offices of Afghanistan. What does that mean? This diaspora acts like Janissaries, acts like people who are raised in the West and would do anything to appease the West. That means they start imitating everything that the United States had done, everything that was wrong. That means that they never localize their context uh, with Afghanistan. So in order for peace to be successful, you have to look at a localized version of it. Even with the fighting, they had to create a localized version of how to conduct those fightings. There were attempts, but there were constant failures. And again, a lot of people made a lot of money from this war in Afghanistan. Uh, it made a lot of private armies very rich. It made a lot of um, arms uh, industry people very rich. And I guess that looks like that was part of the point to have a war going long enough for all of those pockets to be filled. So, And also with regards to the Panjshir resistance right now, there are conversations happening, there are negotiations happening between the Taliban and uh, the number of people that gathered in Panjshir after fleeing Kabul. I don't think that they have the military might to really stand up to the Taliban, but this is an important moment of testing the Taliban's uh, diplomatic sensibilities and as to whether they can reach out and have a um, have an understanding with them. At the end of the day, uh, the fear is the inclusivity of Afghanistan's future governance. The fear is what sort of toleration they would have for different views. Um, and uh, once, and, 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 and in a way, it's good as well because that creates the sense that the Taliban have other entities that they will have to accommodate. But on the other end, it's also problematic because really we don't want any more bloodbaths. We don't want another civil war. 
Um, and if the Taliban are the new reality of Afghanistan, let's try to get the best out of them. It's not ideal, but it's what we have and it's what we have to deal with and make most out of. Abedullah, we really appreciate you joining us live from Kabul at a very tumultuous time. And we really appreciate those insights um, your your very, very grounded views of exactly what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan. And I know people watching it hugely, hugely appreciate your contribution. So thank you so much for joining us and, and stay safe out there. You too. Uh, please uh, take care of yourself and lots of uh, love and respect to everyone back there uh, in England. Thank you so much. L love and solidarity and speak to you soon. See you, bye. See you. Great stuff. Very lucky, of course, to have such a, a brilliant guest who's live from Kabul and has been witness to, obviously, these historic events currently taking place. Now, I'm really, really honoured to be joined by Professor Paul Rogers, who's Professor of Peace Studies uh, at Bradford University. In fact, it's just down the road from me at the moment. I could probably just, probably just pop down the road and do this in person. But it's great to see you nonetheless. Uh, Paul, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks, Owen. And thanks very much for having me on. I thought that interview with uh, Abaidullah was extraordinary. I mean, the insights, there's so many of them, almost every other sentence. So, yeah, I really appreciated that and being able to listen to, to it. Yeah, he was he was really fantastic. We're very lucky to have, have had him. I'm also very lucky to have you. And uh, I said oh, well. and I said this to, uh, to Paul when I met him several years ago uh, at a talk in Yorkshire uh, that I mean, this is probably quite an annoying thing to hear, but when I was, a, you know, when I was a teenager, Paul's work had a very big impact on me and uh, encouraged me down the line of the work that I do. So you've got a lot to answer for. Um, okay. Paul, can you just give me, just just give us a sense, your just initial sense, kind of taking a bird's eye historical view, I suppose, of what happened in the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan. How would you, what's your just overall general take on the events? Well, the general take is obviously that um, uh, the government collapsed much faster than anybody expected, and as far as we can tell, uh, faster than the Taliban themselves expected. And I think in many ways, Abdullah really d demonstrated some of the reasons for that, the, the long-term corruption, um, all the problems that the Afghan National Army had. I mean, you've seen over the last year that the Taliban have played it very cleverly in many ways. There's been virtually no... Uh, conflict with Americans or indeed the small number of British or Germans in Afghanistan. I'm talking about the military. Uh, they kept away from any sort of risk of loss of life, but they used sort of many capabilities uh, to keep the war going against the Afghan National Army. And apart from the relatively small numbers of special forces in the army, which may have not have numbered more than five to 10,000, we're not quite sure, then the ordinary soldiers were finding they were short of food, not getting their salaries, short of ammunition. And as soon as you had this kind of domino effect of some parts of Afghanistan, some of the towns and cities going over to the Taliban with very little fighting, then the thing was very rapid. I mean, I think people from outside still seem to think, well, the Taliban came in from somewhere else. Uh, that's a nonsense. You've had the many links with, with the Pakistan, and I think the involvement of the ISI is probably far more important than realised. But it's essentially the Taliban is primarily within Afghanistan. And as he was just saying, you know, the Taliban people in and around Kabul and were before what's happened in the last couple of weeks. And this, I think, helps to explain it in that the fact was that Taliban controlled a large part of the countryside, probably getting on for half for a long period. 
and they had established a way of doing things. It could be brutal, it could be rigid, but it worked to an extent. You found that roads in areas that were under Taliban control were passable. You might have to pay one sort of uh, fee to get through, but you would then get a receipt. So there's other roadblocks you would just go through. Very different from the sort of banditry you've had. But what it meant was that in the countryside itself, they were already there. And what changed dramatically was the way that once they started to move into the larger towns and the smaller cities, and the fact that with the exception, I think, of Lashkagar and Kandahar, one or two others, there was very little fighting. Uh, essentially, it became obvious to people on the Afghan national side that you could do local deals and walk away without getting killed or engaging in fighting. And this, I think, is what led to the speeding up of the process, which has led to all the problems of vacuum of administration and governance that we were just heard from so graphically. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, I mean, one of the, I suppose, travesties of the parliamentary debate we had here in Britain is lots of MPs were wringing their hands about Afghanistan and many of them hadn't spoken about the issue for a very, very, very long time. In fact, it really hadn't punctured uh, political consciousness for a very long time. Britain essentially withdrew back in 2014, something completely missing from the whole debate itself. But do you just want to describe, if we, I mean, over those two decades, basically what went wrong? How did we get to this particular point when two decades ago, following 9-11, we saw the occupation of Afghanistan uh, and, you know, victory was declared, as victory was declared, of course, infamously in, in Iraq, mission accomplished. What went so horribly wrong for the US-led occupation? I think you've got to go right back to the beginning. And I think we have to recognise, particularly as non-Americans, that the 9-11 attacks were absolutely visceral in the impact on the United States. They were far more than the sort of the one that is compared, the, the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor in 1949 was a Japanese raid at a time of high tension by a potentially belligerent power. It was in a military attack on a military base, uh, not even in the continental United States and not in the television age. 9-11 was quite different. Uh, and of course, it, was, it hit two huge symbols of different kinds of American power the World Trade Center in New York, which was seen as almost the iconic center of American financial power, and the Pentagon, the headquarters of this unbelievably powerful military force, which in, the, in 2001 was very much still a superpower. And I think that meant that there's going to be very little alternative to the Americans reacting very strongly with military means. For what it's worth, I think that if, in fact, um, 
George W. Bush hadn't won the 2000 election uh, and um, Al Gore had won it, he probably would have taken action in Afghanistan, but very unlikely in Iraq as well. But the point was that we were set for war, but from the Taliban point of view and the Al-Qaeda point of view even more so, for Al-Qaeda, this was what they wanted. I mean, you have to remember that within the thinking among many of these people 20, 25 years ago, in the 1980s, it was the Mujahideen with Arab fighters and others who basically got rid of the Soviets. And in their view, and it's only an exaggeration, not hugely more than that, they'd helped bring about the end of the Soviet Union. And I think what we didn't recognize at the time, or very few of us were even suggesting this, was the thing was to some extent a trap by Al-Qaeda. You draw the United States into Southwest Asia, and bit by bit over many years, you weaken them. And you argue, in fact, now we're in this extraordinary position where the United States, in terms of status, has actually been weakened. So I would actually argue, and I mean, I was working with Oxford Research Group at the time, and I remember Silla Elwith and I did an immediate analysis, and we basically said, do not go to war. This was after 9-11, before the war started. Now, it's a very difficult thing to say because of what had happened. But I have to say, looking back on it, it was probably the right analysis. The problem was that, of course, that it appeared to be very successful, primarily because Al-Qaeda was able to disperse itself pretty quickly. Uh, Taliban melted away, some into Pakistan, both down into Baluchistan and also the Northwest Territories. Most people just went back to their homes and towns with their weapons intact. So it was a, a false kind of vacuum. Uh, and what should have happened then, and some of the really good UN people were saying at the time, you need a major stabilization force in Afghanistan to enable the Afghans to rebuild their own security. I'm not talking about loads of Western peacekeepers. People like Lakhta Brahimi, who was a key point man for the UN at the time and had previously been uh, foreign minister of Algeria. So he was an experienced practicing politician. People like him were saying you need several tens of thousands, maybe 30,000 people bought in from a range of countries, including Islamic countries, lots of aid in every respect to help basically fill that gap. ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force was set up, but it only had about 5,000 people for the first two or three years, enough to basically provide a, a security in Kabul and Kandahar and maybe Mazar Sharif and Herat and one or two others, nothing beyond that. And so the Taliban were quickly reestablishing themselves even by 2003, 2004. And bit by bit, you've seen the deterioration since. And of course, the other thing that was going along with this, and you see it in the State of the Union address that Bush delivered in January 2002, which is almost a sort of victory speech. And basically, he extended the war to the axis of evil. And it was clear even by March 2002, the United States would go to war with Iraq. And so basically, Afghanistan did not count. And where the Americans, I think, expected the Europeans to come up and provide the aid, Europe did not either, or only on a very small scale. And I think it's that early period you have to go back to. It's being forgotten now. But the reality is there was a problem with the whole concept of a war on terror. And of course, we've seen the failed wars, as you said, in Iraq, in Libya, and the more recent bitter air war against uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria, 2014-18. So it's a long chapter uh, of mistakes. And behind this, and coming back very quickly to what you were saying about the debate, has this perception in the United States and in dear old Great Britain that we are the great powers and we are the police of the world. And that, I'm afraid, is, is a terrible error 
but it's behind a lot of what is going on, I'm afraid, at the moment. Before I ask you about US power, I mean, that debate you just alluded to again here in, here in Britain, what struck me, what was missing, as I said earlier, was any sense of uh, context. So, of course, yeah. we saw what happened, not just the wider occupation in Iraq, but the British component, where in Basra, effectively, the British army were essentially driven out of the city by Shiite militia who ruled the roost. And then because of the humiliation of Basra, the British government felt it wanted to prove its military worth to the United States, um, having because I think there was a set, an arrogant British sense that they understood counterinsurgency better than the Americans. And that seemed to be discredited in, in terms of what happened in Iraq. And then you had the surge, of course, in Helmand province, and that ended very badly for Britain, didn't it? I mean, they got bailed out by the United States, Marines, and then Britain essentially withdrew in 2014. So, But in the parliamentary debates, you saw Theresa May, the former prime minister and others, being applauded, either suggesting that Britain had leverage over the United States to prevent them from withdrawing, or that Britain could somehow go it alone, as though Britain has an independent foreign policy. I think this partly comes back to the long-term history of Britain in its international role. I remember this, I won't say how many years ago it was, but certainly over 50 years ago, when I was at college, I had a friend who was a Ghanaian student, and he was remarking one day, almost in passing, that, you know, Paul, there was this saying that the sun never sets on the British Empire. You know, there's always somewhere in the sunshine. And he said the reason for this was because God didn't trust the British in the dark. Now, the point about that was it was a completely different view of Britain from, a, a, from basically much of the rest of the world. If you'd cracked that joke in 19th century London, say 1880s, 1890s, people would, would not have been able to understand it at all. Even now, I think it's very difficult for many British people to take on. And much of all the debate and controversy over Brexit is about this idea that Britain is a great power. And the problem is, I mean, I think there are only two European countries that have this to the same extent, and those are France and Britain. Mm. And each of us has a delusion of post-imperial grandeur made more solid by our possession of nuclear weapons and a place on the uh, um, Security Council with a veto. And so we see ourselves as so important, so much so that we have this extraordinary flotilla of a giant aircraft carrier somewhere, I think it's somewhere around Japan at present, with all the ships accompanying it. It's this idea that we are a great power. And I think much of the way that that debate was going on last Wednesday was a reflection of that complete misunderstanding of what role a country like Britain could play. I mean, as far as I can see for what it's worth, in an era of pandemics and impending climate breakdown, a middle-ranking state like Britain could actually be significant, but not in a military sense. I mean, as far as military concerned, you can't even approach those problems with traditional military thinking. So we have this huge problem of needing to rethink security. It's going to be even more difficult in Britain than many other countries, I'm afraid. People are generally well-versed with the atrocities committed by the Taliban, but as we just heard, for example, from... Um, from live from Kabul, we a brilliant guest spoke about the raids on houses and so on, uh, which were committed by U.S. forces. But I mean, you know, if we look, for example, at uh, the uh, Afghan local police, thirty thousand strong pro-government militia mo uh, mobilized by the U.S., guilty of murdering civilians, committing fraud, theft, rape, kidnapping, drug trafficking, extortion, the CIA-backed Coast Protection Force, 
huge human rights violations. Uh, the fact that warlords and Afghan warlords that the US chose as allies were Human Rights Watch said, uh, you know, they thought that they could help provide security and stability despite their records of abuses. The opposite proved to be the case, they said. Attacked villages, raped women, summarily executed civilians, stole livestock and land. I mean, to what extent do you think those atrocities, which are not reported widely at all in the West, no. people are not familiar with them whatsoever, and that has been instrumental in terms of the West presenting itself for local, for domestic consumption as the just the good guys. How much do you think that played a role in the revival of the Taliban? I think it would have helped a lot. And certainly there's even more uh, clear in uh, in Iraq, where we, on a few occasions, the mainstream American press uh, reporting with some of its really good reporters, like Pamela Constable, were reporting what was going actually going on. But that was rare. In Afghanistan, it was even less. And the problem was that uh, the impact it had was to give a false picture of what was going on. And in a way, it's part of this uh, wider culture in countries like Britain and United States and France that we are we are the good guys and the rest are the bad guys. It's as crude as that. And we don't do things that we accuse them of doing. And when you peer a little bit below the surface, it's very different. Here and there, occasionally, a country will face up to this. Uh, I think what has happened recently in Australia over the last year or so with the controversy over the appalling behaviour of the Scottish, uh, of the Australian, sorry, of the Australian special... Oh, hold on, Paul. Sorry, I think we just we just lost you there slightly, Paul. One second. We're going to, we'll, we'll get you back. We somehow, for some reason, seem to have lost sound. Do you want to try reconnecting? Bear with us. It's okay. These things happen. Oh, hello. Paul, do you, do you want to try just quickly, if you exit and re-enter? Let's try that. And while Paul's doing that, I will continue uh, to, to, to babble um, about what we've got coming up in the next week while Paul's just reconnecting. Uh, because this week, as I said, we're working on a documentary about wealth and power uh, in Britain, we're going to be looking at a, a, a range uh, of different topics in terms of who owns land, landowners, landed property, but also within the major cities as well. Um, and that's thanks to your support. So we really appreciate that. We've also got an interview with Clive Lewis, who is a Labour MP, who is a military veteran. He actually served in Afghanistan uh, back in 2012. Uh and he wasn't called by the speaker um, in the debate. He was the only Afghan veteran not to be called by the speaker in the parliamentary debate. So we're very lucky to have had him uh, to interview. So we'll be sharing his interview this week about his experiences in Afghanistan, what he learned and what he would have said in parliament if he'd had the chance. Paul, do you want to try speaking? See if we can hear you now. No. So it's a very interesting sound. Sounds quite musical, actually. Uh, I mean, but what I'd su suggest just quickly is if if you close, if you log out and then log back in again. Let's try that, if that's possible. If you can hear me, not sure. We, yeah, there we go. We'll try that. Uh, these things happen. It's it's it is live. It's. I mean, I think what it is is having ridiculed GB News so extensively on this show and their technical mishaps. Uh, this is karma. This is the great revenge of GB News. 
to be fair, we don't have a multi-million pound budget, so we do actually have more excuses uh, than they do. Uh, what I'm going to do is have a little look as well. People are uh, what people people are saying. Uh, David Bowater, who's a regular, asked if Abadala Bahir is going to be safe. Anything we can do to help him? Like a fundraising uh, fund to ha- to help get him out. I will speak to him afterwards. I'll let I'll let everybody know next week how he's doing. I think he's okay. Let me just check with Paul now. Paul, yes, we can hear We're you. Doing. Oh right, I don't know what's going. On. The trouble is, I've got a good system here, but I'm low tech. But I have sons who are high tech, so they set it up, but they're not at home at present. So I'm sorry. No, you are now you are now crisp and clear again. So yeah, just okay. what I was going to ask. The other question I was going to ask is just about. U.S. power and what this means for U.S. power, because if we look back in, you know, this is obviously compared to the fall of Saigon in 1975, the defeat of the United States in the Vietnam War after far more American soldiers died, but up to three million people died, of course, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. But that was seen as a big traumatic defeat. And at the time, U.S. power seemed to be in decline because you had various Soviet aligned forces on the march across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But then, of course, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union, which left the United States as a global hegemon. So what does this mean? Has, is this now? How, how severe are the consequences for US power? Ooh, it, that's a really difficult one because it's so complicated because you had the four years of Donald Trump, which was all about, quotes, making America great again, but actually withdrawing into itself to be great. Uh, and now we have the... Biden coming in, trying to restore things to more or less the way they were before. And you've had this huge disaster as far as he is concerned uh, with what has happened in Afghanistan. Um, I think we are probably in a period of decline. But in a sense, you have this problem, as one well knows, that if you have a really powerful state, particularly a world power, which is to some extent in decline, that is when things could be most dangerous. That is when it is more likely for people like Trump to come in. I remember at a British International Studies Association meeting about um, about seven or eight years ago. It was at the end of, uh, of Obama's first term. And quite a lot of the people were discussing this and were very critical of that Obama wasn't living up to scratch. One of the sort of specialists in American foreign policy said, look, you've got to realize that Obama has probably the most difficult job in American politics. He's presiding over a country which is beginning to be in decline in terms of relative power. So I think it's very difficult for the United States to do it. As to what this means, I think it does mean into a period of some decline. This, of course, is when the growing power, without a doubt, is China, which has its own sense of manifest destiny, with all the problems built into that. And I think it's also an issue where we simply don't know whether it's going to be a slow change down or whether, you know, like the old Roadrunner cartoon, you know, the Roadrunner goes over the cliff, doesn't realise it's over the cliff and then suddenly plummets down. It may be sort of sudden demise. What it does mean, of course, is that, you know, for a state like Britain, which thinks it too is global and does it by sort of hanging on to the coattails of the United States, that is not in a good position to be in at any time and certainly not after Brexit. So there are many implications for British politics. Going back to your earlier question, this is what comes out of that debate last week. It was so unreal in terms of the relationship of what was going on in the world as a whole and in Britain's supposed role in it. I mean, that was the other thing. You mentioned China. I mean, I am interested in where this leaves the kind of shift 
that that's happened in terms of the global balance of power towards China. I mean, the financial crash accelerated it. COVID has essentially, yeah. uh, but also these, you know, the defeats the West suffered in Iraq, uh, in the Middle East generally, and now Afghanistan. Where where does this leave China? And what sort of power do you think China will will emerge as? What how will it exert its power as as it increases? In many ways, that really is interesting, if I can use that term interesting for something so serious. I mean, when the Americans went into Afghanistan back in 2001, 2002, what they did at the time was to establish bases in, I think it was Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and possibly even Kazakhstan as well. And that basically increased their influence in Central Asia. It was not something that Beijing or Moscow liked, but it certainly happened. Now, basically, it's reverse, and what you do see is that the countries that are going to gain most in the short term from what is Afghanistan, or certainly Pakistan, particularly the ISI with all its Taliban links, and in all probability, China. Now, Iran, obviously, in the West, it will be significant, but the Iranians are always rather chary about the, um, the Taliban, and partly goes back to the murder of those Iranian diplomats more than 20 years ago. But China is a different case in point, that it really is significant that less than four weeks ago, there was a major, Taliban delegation invited to visit China, spend time with the foreign minister and basically look at future relations. For the Chinese, they would like to be in a position where they can have proper direct physical links with Afghanistan. Remember the Wakhan Corridor goes right through to a high pass, which technically does allow you to get from Afghanistan into China. It's that one common point. Uh, that could be converted with tunnels and the rest into an all-weather capability. China, from the point of view of the Taliban, would want assurances that the Uyghur paramilitaries that have formed part of the Taliban force would be reined and held in check. And so basically the position in Xinjiang province would be eased from the Chinese point of view. Uh, the Taliban could benefit from rapid aid to development. The Chinese will get new routes through to Gwadar and through to the west and will also be able to help develop the very strong mineral resources in Afghanistan. So in crude terms like that, I don't know whether it will work out, but the prospects are for increased Chinese influence moving from Eastern Asia through towards West Asia and made easier by what has happened. That will depend very much on the Taliban's attitudes, whether they really want to open up, but by the very fact that you had this uh, summit meeting four weeks ago, which may turn out to be one of the most significant developments this year, then I think we are in for a time of change. And that does lead to a diminishing of US power, concern in India, because Indian influence is decreasing. And so there is a shift going on, uh, basically one. It's in the early days, very difficult to predict what it will go, but it's not going to be the way things were before. I'm pretty sure of that. And just finally, where do you think this leads leaves future Western military interventions? I mean, as we said, we've had two decades now. We've had Afghanistan, disaster. Libya, disaster. Iraq, disaster. The war on terror, if we look at the 16 years before 2001, compared to the 16 years afterwards, over twice as many people a year on average died because of terrorist uh, incidents following the war on terror than compared to the 16 years before. So, I mean... On their own terms, they've all been very catastrophic, huge amounts of lives lost and trillions, literally trillions of dollars. It's about six, five trillion dollars, six trillion dollars spent by the United States on these various wars. Where do you think this leads future military interventions? 
I think large-scale military interventions by Western states, in other words, tens of thousands on boots of the ground, are almost certainly going to be a thing of the past and maybe of the distant past. The very clear move that you see happening now, and it's extension of what has been developing over 15 years, has been the move to what we used to call remote control warfare, now more generally remote warfare. So basically, instead of the kinds of forces that were put in the past, uh, you will have the use of armed drones, strike aircraft with long-range standoff weapons, special forces, um, privatized military, cyber attacks, the use of local militias. And you see that already. I mean, essentially, what will the United States do now if it suspects that al-Qaeda or even ISIS units in Afghanistan are being allowed by the Taliban uh, to present a threat to, quote, American interests elsewhere and maybe even the continent of the United States. What the United States has clearly said it will do is it will engage in remote warfare almost entirely using drones and strike aircraft. It's already been doing it in a sense. And that is what is happening in other conflict. The United States and Britain are still regularly doing airstrikes in Iraq and Syria against ISIS forces who are mostly gone to ground, but not entirely. You're seeing it, I think, most in extreme form right across the Sahel in Africa and right down through East Africa. I mean, we've had outbreaks of a kind of um, radical Isla Islamist paramilitaries recently in the DRC, the Congo, just across the border from Uganda and in Mozambique. In both states, uh, aid is being provided either from the United States or Portugal or France in support of the special forces in those countries. So now already you're seeing those kinds of forms of warfare taking place. And I think the thing here is that that represents a shift, but you will not get the very large numbers of boots on the ground. But given that the war against ISIS between 2014 and 18 was largely remote warfare, and that has not worked, ISIS is developing in other parts of the world, even that kind of warfare is, is basically, I think, obsolete. That will not be recognized because the military industrial complex worldwide is so incredibly powerful and influential. But the reality is we have to go for fundamental rethinking what we mean by security. Uh, the lessons of the last 20 years are the way that things are done are not working and there's no remote way they will be relevant in an era of climate breakdown. There has to be some pretty fundamental rethinking and it has to be done quickly. Paul, it's been a massive, massive honour to have you sharing huge, your huge wisdom, talents and insights on, on all of this. Uh, whenever events of these importance happens, you're always one of the first people I always look to in terms of your work. Everyone do go on to Open Democracy. If you do search Paul Rogers, Open Democracy, you'll see a very extensive catalogue of articles uh, on many of these issues which are exceptionally educational and informative but honestly paul it's a, it's a real honor i owe you a pint so i'm sure we'll meet in real life okay soon enough. i'll settle with that be very happy with that and thank you very much for having me and then letting me gather on this length i'm afraid no not at all it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a real honor and we're, we're always very lucky as i said to have uh guests of your caliber on this show uh, but it was exceptionally educational and uh i think if we contrast this to the parliamentary debates so so quite quite the contrast uh but cheers paul really appreciate it take care you thanks so much thanks take care bye bye um i i better go quickly actually because i just realized the camera just malfunctioned you didn't notice it it's slight technical uh issues which we've i think we've smoothed over 
Uh, but I think the camera's going to turn off any minute. Uh, so I'm now going to go for brunch with my family in Sheffield. But I learned a huge amount from both those absolutely fantastic guests, both of them extremely uh, insightful and, as I've said, far more educational than most of the coverage that we've got from the media and certainly from the speeches we heard in Parliament and uh, from US politicians as well this week. So thank you so much to both those guests. As ever, you make this possible with patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 and the documentaries that we're currently working on, you make possible. We're also, by the way, going to do a documentary at Labour Party conference. So that's in a month's time. I see an interview with Keir Starmer uh, in The Observer, in which he essentially just says that he's abandoning the 10 pledges that he made in order to be elected leader of the Labour Party. And I suppose what I would say to that is, where does it leave a politician if they admit that they said things, promises, made promises in order to get elected, which they have no intention of honouring? If they did that once, they'll do it again. Pretty fatal thing for a politician to do. It'll be very interesting to see what happens at Labour Party conference, uh, but we'll have a documentary, thanks to you, uh, you make it possible. We'll also do a documentary at Conservative Party conference, by the way. That's a uh, regular feature, tradition that I do. Do look up our previous documentaries at uh, Conservative Party Conference. But again, that's made possible by you at patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, as well as people on Super Chat, brilliant as ever, like Ted Cantwell, like Rory McLean, like David Barretta, like SM is the dog. Uh, thank you so much to you, to all of you. If you're watching this, please press like and subscribe. Do listen on the podcast as well. Uh, the podcast is doing very well, so thank you for all the support. Uh, there and spread the word we'll be back live i'll be in okay i'm leaving the country for the first time uh malta but i do intend to do a live show from malta next weekend uh let's see if the wi-fi allows me to do that but i'm hoping it will i'm there for another wedding weddings every single week uh because obviously there's a bit of a backlog because of the pandemic so i will hopefully be alive from malta um half the british left will be there because it's uh a a prominent left-wing commentator is getting married let you guess who that is uh, but lots of love, everybody. We'll have, as I've said, the documentaries uh, coming out very soon, uh, thanks to you. And lots of interviews, including Clive Lewis, a Labour MP veteran of Af the Afghan conflict. Uh, but lots of love, everyone. Take care of yourself, and I will see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash owenjones84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to speaking to you soon imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.